Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. It's SolderJS coming at you live from Cloudy Provo, using all lead-based solder all the time for all the things. Nice. Christopher and Andy. Hey, it's the Vanilla JS guy. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. You're supposed to say blah, 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 thinkster.io. Blah, 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 thinkster.io. Bam! Amy Knight. Nailed it. Nailed it. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Wait, Amy, you're supposed to say blah, 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 doing squats. <laughs> blah, 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 doing deadlifts, breaking PRs. Ah, oh, so much better. I see that on your Instagram and I'm like, I am such a wuss. <laughs> deadlifts are so fun though. They're like my oh, favorite my exercise. Favorite. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm gonna make a quick announcement and then I'll announce our guests. I have decided to double down on JavaScript Jabber. So starting beginning of July, actually, this will probably go out after we do this, but uh, you'll be getting two episodes of JavaScript Jabber every week. So anyway, there you go. I'm still talking to the panelists as far as their time commitment and whether we need to bring in a few more people, but we'll see how that goes. We have two special guests this week. We have Josh Thomas. Josh, you haven't been on the show before as far as I can remember. No, first time uh, attendee, but I've been a long time listener. Nice. And Mike Hardington. Hello. It's now currently kind of rainy in Providence, Rhode Island. Get Datadog for visibility into your entire application from browser to the code base and all the way down to the infrastructure. Get proactively alerted on any client-side issues such as JavaScript and network issues. Optimize the load time on your front-end resources and detect any UI issues that affect critical user journeys. Discover that it isn't a front-end problem? You can tie all this information to corresponding back-end traces, code-level errors, infrastructure-level metrics, and even related logs in seconds without any querying. Try it out today here, https colon forward slash forward slash dtdg, that's data dog without the vowels, dot co slash JavaScript Jabber. Now, uh, Josh, you want to just tell us who you are real quick? Uh, let us know what you do, why you're famous, all that stuff. I'm not famous, but uh, I'm a developer here at Ionic. I work on the open source part of the Ionic framework, and more recently, I've been working on Stencil. Nice. And Mike, go ahead and remind people who you are as well. Mike Hardington, DevRel at Ionic. I do many things and I use them. Nice. Weird. So, you know, we got two guys from Ionic here and of course we're going to talk about something else. So Stencil, what is Stencil? So just to give a little background, uh, we call Stencil, it's a compiler for web components. It was originally created out of some work we did for Ionic 4. So I don't know if you've heard Ionic 4 is now available for Vue, React, and Angular. So we're not just uh, isolated to a single framework now. And as part of that, we went through a process of discovering technology and what we thought would be best for building Ionic on to be able to complement all the different frameworks. And we found that web components uh, ended up being the best for us. Oh, interesting. Because I think I talked to Mike and I think we were, something got mentioned about Angular elements and then that didn't work out for you. So I'm, I'm a little curious what the difference is as far as like being able to embed functionality one way versus maybe another way. Because you can also do the same kind of thing with React under certain circumstances. And yeah, so you have options. So why'd you, why'd you build your own? Well, this was about two years ago and we did some investigation into what the alternatives were. And we really wanted to be masters of our future. So we looked at what was out there and we actually had some discussions with uh, Evan Yu about this as well. And he led us down a path of looking into SnapDOM and it just ended up, uh, we decided to build our own compiler <laughs> as one does. And I think it really like, gets to the point, like Angular, like two years ago, Angular Elements was still just like an experiment that Rob was working on and not really ready for the prime time. And it had a lot of extra things that, you know, as component authors, we don't necessarily need, like, we don't need dependency injection because we're not making uh, an app. We're just making a collection of components. And it's that right. kind of like a clear separation between what a component developer needs versus a framework or an application developer needs, where it kind of led us down the road of like, why don't we just make our own thing that can compile down to vanilla web components? And we can just be more effective in write, how we write those components versus recreating everything else that we would normally expect to get from a framework. Yeah, I'd say we originally looked at just going straight vanilla for web components and not using anything on top of it. So we have a team of developers here that work on Ionic. And the more we worked with 
uh, vanilla web components, we felt like there was a lot to be desired, especially coming from Angular, where, you know, batteries are included and there's a lot of things available to you. So we thought that, you know, providing an extra abstraction on top of it gave us a lot of value. So we decided to create Stencil for ourselves. And in the process, we realized, hey, this is really valuable to us. Maybe other people would like it as well. So that's when we decided to make it a separate project and open source it. I think that was probably about a year and a half ago. I don't remember for sure. Something like that. It was like Polymer Summit. 2017, 2018, something like that. Yep. So uh, yeah, that's that's where we ended up was creating the compiler. I think what we found though is that a lot of people are really interested in using Stencil specifically for building component libraries, which is what Ionic is. So that's what was the, the intended purpose was as well. You know, in the last six months, I've been on a lot of phone calls with large companies that are looking at using Stencil specifically for design systems. Nice. Has anyone here built a design system before or worked on one? Yes, I have actually. Just kind of for my own thing and then also internally at a company. So I haven't worked a lot with um, like modern components. So a lot of what I've worked with in the past has been, you know, kind of like standalone, like what you would find in something like like Bootstrap, for example, but like adapted for a specific company use case where you'll have yeah. some, you know, some HTML, some JavaScript, some CSS, and they all kind of live in their own little spots. Personally, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how people use Stencil for something, not necessarily like that, but for, you know, kind of building out uh, design systems. Can we talk a little bit more about design systems and when you should implement them? Because it seems like, I don't know, uh, it seems very trendy. And so I want to, for people, like we have a lot of people maybe who are more JavaScript specific, and I know that's kind of where I come from. And so I'd be curious, like, when do you need a design system? Like, let's at, let's maybe answer that question before we dive further into Stencil. Sure. I'm not going to claim to be an expert on design systems <laughs> without a designer. Uh, I'm more on the implementation side. But I would say that from the companies we've talked to, I can speak on my experience in working with them, is that a design system is mostly about building a system for translating designs, specifically in, in our case, across the web. So you identify from your existing sites, the small building blocks that you have, and then to the smallest possible unit. And then you build up from there, creating components from those. I think that in many cases, people build design systems for small scale projects, but I don't think that's really necessary. A lot of the companies that we're talking to are major brands who want a consistent design across all of their properties. And that's where a design system really shines because you yeah. can have many developers and many designers working together to come up with what we'd call like a standardized system across the company that controls the brand. And in those cases, it works wonders. It's a, it's a really nice resource to have. That part makes sense. So I think potentially maybe just, I don't know, some people are uh, diving in when they don't necessarily need to do that. Like they don't have the scale to need something like that just yet. Yeah. And I would tell those people to hold off. You always want to scale sooner than possible, larger than possible, <laughs> and below all of your structure. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's exactly what scale. I'm thinking. Like, it sounds like as I'm like wanting to like abstract things away just in my JavaScript, like same thing with design system. Like, you don't want to do that because there's, I don't know, there's always like, there's friction that happens when you start breaking things up, which sometimes that's good, but you got to weigh the pros and cons. I, I yeah. will put out a plug for... This book, Building Design Systems by uh, Sarah Veselov and Tori Davis. It is probably one of the best resources right now that I can think of for not just how to build a design system, but a lot of the rationale behind why you would want to build one. What are some of the, you know, what's kind of the costs of building this and how do you apply that to your own uh, infrastructure and your own team? Yeah, I think that. If you're going to build a design system, you really have to have a lot of existing sites and applications available to you to pull from. Otherwise, you're just kind of creating the design from thin air and you're not going to be as successful. You're trying to see what the future looks like. I think it's interesting, you know, we're talking about design systems and then, you know, both of you kind of mentioned, you know, we're not ex exactly experts on design systems. So it's obvious to me then that Ionic is using Stencil for something else. I would say yes and no. I mean, we're Ionic itself 
is its own design system, more or less, with its own logic and kind of reasoning about how components should interact. Like, what's the overall design of the component? And then, like, if you click on a button, what's the interaction that's going to happen with this button? And how does that relate to everything else in the entire structure? So, in a sense, it's its own design system. But in a kind of, like, non-design approach to it, it's really just an abstraction for us to also be able to target all of these other different frameworks or even cases where there is no framework, like a random WordPress page or some about.html where we need some of these components, but don't necessarily need the cost or the weight of a full framework, be it React, Vue, or Angular. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That's, that's a good explanation of how we see Ionic is it's kind of like a design system, more of a component library that people can pull from and theme themselves. I think we created Stencil specifically for our own use case. And if we think of Ionic as a design system, then we specifically built it for design systems. And I think that from the organizations we're talking to that are using Stencil, that's mostly where people are seeing the value. I think some people are building applications with it, but in most cases, they're building like shared component libraries which would be like the build artifact of a design system. All right. So first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty used to being completely wrong. I have five kids. And so, yeah, I'm always wrong. But being half wrong, you know, how, how are you using it then? So you, you kind of have a design system that kind of acts like a design system, but it kind of doesn't. So what's the use case that, that people like me who does, I, I'm not going to create my own design system, or if I do, it's going to be rel- relatively small for just the couple of use cases I need. What am I looking at here then? Yeah. You know, what am I, I going to do I mean, with this? I would, I would say that it's, it's really applicable to a specific use case scenario, right? So you want to build a component and you want to use that component in an agnostic framework way. So you want to use the component with a website or you want to use the component with Vue or Angular or React or any other flavor of framework. That's not going to be applicable for a lot of people, right? If you're working on a a singular application, you're building components for your application. But there are a lot of people building design systems that start with the framework they're knowledgeable in, like React, and build their design system in React, and then go to the rest of the company and realize that maybe only 70% of the company or 50% of the company is using React. So what happens to the other percentage of the company that might be using Angular or Vue? They get more Usually work Usually they're left to their own devices. <laughs> I'm just trolling, sorry. No, it's true that. though. You know, th- there is that disconnect that occurs, right? Yeah, right, some, Somebody's left out in the cold one way or the other. But it kind of goes down to like, all of these frameworks do speak a common language, and that is there is a DOM node, right? There is some element that we want to render to the DOM and how that, like what that DOM node actually can do. Maybe the framework doesn't need to care about it. Like if I have a button or if I have a date picker, like my framework does not need to know what that date picker is like, its internal logic is. It just needs to know, I want to render a date picker component it's going to emit these vents and it has these attributes or properties that you can set on it to set values internally. That's something that Angular can do really well. It's something that Vue does really well. Uh, React with certain, with some quirks here and there. But there's this kind of common denominator of what can be done in all these frameworks. And that's, we have an element. doesn't matter what framework you want to use. You can put that component in there and know that it's going to work and know that everything's going to behave as expected. And that's kind of why, we, why we're using Stencil for Ionic is we want to target all these frameworks. Being locked into one framework these days doesn't really make much sense. It's easier to just write these components as, as a standard web component kind of model and then just let the framework dictate how, when it should get rendered or how these values should be updated or what to do with these events. Yeah, I don't think we want to tell people not to use frameworks. <laughs> I think well, frameworks are really good for building applications. We had us a good talk about that. Yeah, I listened to it. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll refer people back to that episode because I think, I think the case was made pretty well. I, I think one way or the other, you know, to look at your use case and then, you know, what you should be considering before you go all the way in. So, 
definitely. And and it sounds like stencils kind of the same way, right? It's a toolkit that can solve a lot of those issues. But yeah, look at your use case and make sure that this is going to solve some of those problems for you. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, taking a surgical perspective is the right way to approach it rather than just blasting everything with web components and frameworks, right? Understand your use case and whether this fits. And for certain people, this fits a use case that really there wasn't a tool in the past that, that fit for them. But I think web components are at a point now in their maturity where they can solve a lot of problems for people. And I think that with the proper abstractions, it's, it's a really nice tool to make use of. Yeah, and that kind of gets to the point of like, web components are great, but they are very low level. And trying to have people work with that at a low level, kind of managing your own updates to the DOM, managing your own kind of pseudo rendering engine for that internal component. It's like, that's why web components kind of work that well. Having Stencil exist to manage that kind of internal logic just makes sense and it solves so many more problems uh, that you wouldn't get from just using web components generally. Right. So does Cordova change the game at all? Because I know that Ionix built on Cordova. Or does it, does it just act like a regular browser? I mean, it's a kind of a question like it doesn't necessarily impact how web components or how Stencil can be used. Like I think if there's any kind of equivalent like question that we could kind of pull out from that is like browser support or like where can you use web components? They are supported pretty far back. I think Chrome has been you know, leading the way in terms of browser support. Safari actually has full support for this. Firefox also has support. There is a couple little pieces here and there that are missing. I think Josh can correct me on that if I'm wrong. No, Firefox no? is good now. Yep. Perfect. And with Edge moving over to Chromium, they instantly get support for that. So we're pretty good across the board. And even if they were, we're in a situation like IE11, where it has zero support for anything that we really need, Stencil itself as a compiler is smart enough to know when I load in an environment that does not have support for certain APIs, dynamically load these polyfills. So if you need a polyfill shadow DOM, it'll just handle that without the dev having to configure it or set that up themselves. It'll just work. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big advantages we have over some of the competitors in the market is that whenever you build a component with Stencil, the code that gets delivered to a browser or to NPM is generated in such a way that you don't really need to worry about those things. You don't need to worry about the polyfills that are available. We handle that for you. You don't have to worry about the bundling process that's also included. So on the internals, we use Rollup for bundling, which is pretty efficient, like very efficient. And if you want to use the NPM bundle that's generated in your application and you're using Webpack, that all works fine as well. So really the focus is to generate web components in a way where developers feel comfortable using them and effective. And the web components are created in such a way that it's easy for people to consume them as well. So, so I have a question actually for, for everyone on the panel. What are their thoughts on web components? That's actually what I was going to ask. <laughs> Has anyone actually used them or have they just heard FUD from Twitter? For the FUD thing. The I've FUD. been skeptical because, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the big arguments I hear about in terms of their benefit is... Um, like you get these nice little HTML components that have some scoped CSS associated with them and, and things like that. And for me, that's never really been a problem that ha I've felt that needs fixing. So they seem to, for me, offer a solution to a problem I don't have. I could be misunderstanding what they do or how they work, but um, I love the Cascade. I love globally scoped CSS and I want as much of it as I can get. So for me, like... That's been one of those, oh, this seems like a lot of work for a thing that I don't personally think I'll get a lot of benefit out of. But I could be completely misunderstanding what they are or how they work. Yeah, I think you're, what you're hearing is kind of, you know, the sell of Shadow DOM and being able to have like a DOM tree that instead of it being globally accessible, it's isolated, like the internals of a video element. But it's totally optional, right? You can opt in to use Shadow DOM and have you know all your styles be scoped to this component. There's no abstract. There's no leak. There's no cascade. 
or you can you know say I don't want to use that. I'll just use um, I'll just use you know penchild or inner HTML. I'll use some other rendering method to get my HTML into this component, and then the cascade will still be able to work. I think there are some performance hits here and there depending on the scale that you are working in. But for the most case, like you don't really see any need to enable Shadow DOM or have everything be scope. You can still be effective without it. So let's say hypothetically you don't do those things. Why would I want to use a component versus um, just creating a component the old I'm going to calling them both components gets a little confusing, but creating some sort of, I'll call it a widget, creating a widget the old fashioned way where I've got, you know, some divs or some other semantically appropriate HTML elements that I'm using instead with some, you know, classes on them or data attributes to add some functionality and style. How do you think about, um, like, if you're sharing that widget, how do you develop the widget in such a way that it's easily shareable or reusable? Um, It depends on who I'm expecting to use it and how. So within the context of a, let's say a company, right? Uh, Like a a design system, since we've been talking about those, the HTML piece of it is something that would probably have to get copy pasted into, um, you know, into a code base somewhere. I'm imagining the CSS and JavaScript are imported as part of some CDN hosted file that our developers internally use or something like that. Or maybe these days they're using modules and imports or something like that. I'm like, I'm super old school with my stuff. And I really just love like dropping a JavaScript file and a script tag and calling it a day. So I'm of the old man yells at the clouds developer bent here. So just keep that in mind as you talk about this stuff. Like I'm so let's let's think I know it's the kids who are wrong, you know? Um what happens when you want to change something about that? Like, what happens if you have propagated that HTML, people have copy-pasted it, and then you realize there's a change you want to make to how it works because it's, there's a bug? That is a great question. Um, <laughs> that was a setup, sorry. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. So it sounds like where you're going with this is that that's an easy and or trivial thing with a component, in which case I would love to hear more. So tell me how that would work with a component. So I would love to tell you more. So Yeah, please we, do, Josh. The way we talk about components is that they have inputs and they have outputs, right? So the inputs are typically properties and attributes, and the outputs are what is rendered to the screen and the events that bubble up. So anyone familiar with working with React components is that you build a component so that you have this small composable piece of the DOM that you can share with others and reuse And you can change the internals of how it works without affecting the API. So this is where the value of web components comes in because you can put information into the slot of the web component and then you can change everything about the internals of how the web component works as long as you don't break the API and you can send out a new version to people and the bugs will be fixed. The JS that's associated with it can be updated the HTML that wraps the slot can be changed. The CSS can be modified. But the people who are consuming it don't need to worry about that because you've got that solid API that they're already making use of. So this is one of the values we see, especially in, in design systems, is the ability to iterate on these components over a long time frame without worrying about how people are consuming them because we've already identified the solid API to it. Make sense? Yeah, that's pretty neat. It's like the advanced version of like jQuery UI widgets or bringing it back, going to the old school way of doing things. Like (laughs) if all those were just kind of one thing and all that can be shipped and distributed, it makes upgrade and it makes working with that component much easier than having to reinstantiate it yourself, having to manage all that kind of data and all those properties in a manual way. Mm -hmm. So is it like a thing where you open up a style tag, then you open up a div, and then you open up a script tag, and then boom, you have this one thing that you could just copy and paste as a single file or a single, how, how do you include it into something else? So or how does that uh, work? Yeah, what you're talking about is probably more the V0 spec, right? So in the V0 spec, we had HTML imports. And I'm not as familiar with the V0 spec, but that's the spec that died. That was the only, only people who The only people who thought that that was a good idea was Chrome. I think a lot of people liked it. Like Polymer was built on that concept, right? Um, Morons. (laughs) But uh, the V1 spec 
which we're making use of. And we're doing so because, you know, Chrome was the first to, to adopt the V1 spec. And then Safari came out in 2017 and said that they were going to adopt it as well. And that's really what sent us on the journey. Because so as soon as Chrome and Safari both adopt the spec, then we're okay with using it. So what that spec identifies is that you have a class, essentially, that maps to a tag name. And as you render that class or call the render method on the class, you, you render HTML or CSS or anything to that specific tag. What am I typing? Am I typing HTML? Am I typing it, JavaScript? Am it I depends on the implementation, but in most cases, you're writing JavaScript. A lot of people are using this in such a way that you have, what, template? Like lit HTML is one example of people are using within their components. What we're doing is we're having people write JSX. So you're actually writing JSX in a class in a render method. So it looks, if you write React, it looks very how can that work in the browser if it's not a language the browser supports? That's because we're a compiler. So you write your code in JSX with decorators. We read your code and we end up creating a compiled version of the component. So that seems like really foreign, right? Because you're not, you don't feel connected necessarily to the way the browser is working, right? You're writing on an abstraction to it. But it allows us to do a lot of really interesting things to reduce the size and impact of the code that you're writing. So one of the most recent demos that we put out is, it's a really te terrible example, but like Hello World, right? A Hello World component generated with Stencil is 87 bytes compressed. So it's just a way of making Hello World like obsolete. But our to-do app is, I think, two kilobytes. Is that right, Mike? Yep. So... We're able to do a lot of things by understanding the, the uses of Stencil within your own code so that we understand what we need to include in the code that we ship to the browser and what we can exclude. So this is just part of how our compiler works. I have a question. Um, if we need to chop this up a bit, we can. But at FPM, we were using tachyons, and I really like that, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Why would I want to use something like Stencil versus something I feel like that Tachyons was a little bit less intrusive? Sure. Tach Tachyons is just CSS though, right? Yeah. Approach. So why, like, would that be something you would recommend for what I asked earlier about kind of like starting off small? Not exactly. So it's, it's kind of a, a separate concern. So if you're writing an application that is... So are, are you typically using tachyons with like React or? Yep. Okay. So in that case, is tachyons like a CSS and JS thing? Um, the way that I'm familiar with it um, now, because I only did a little bit with it until I moved over to the SRE team, but um, it was really like adding classes to my JSX to make things like it's a, it was my understanding. It's like a, basically a design system, you know, I was just adding all of these classes to keep things consistent. So to me, like if I wanted to start off small, I really liked that because it seemed like not intrusive at all. Yeah, and I think that in that case, you're using the design system that you're building with Tachyons within your React components, right? So Correct. what that means though, is that the React components that you're generating with that are only going to be used within your React code base. Yep, exactly. So that's, I guess what I'm saying, like my question earlier about like when you need a design system, like when you need to create your own design system, like going with tachyons would be something that you would um, start off before you wanted to like start making your own design system. I don't necessarily think it's like one or the other. I think there's definitely some middle ground approach where if you want to use like include tachyons in your project and then also export those components as uh, web components, you know, via stencil, via some other abstraction. I think it's a total, a totally valid like approach to doing it. And I mean, if you're at the point where you say, yes, I just need to do it for this one-off project. Yeah, maybe working with web components or creating, thinking about it in terms of a design systems isn't the right path that you want to go down. But if you're trying to look at it at scale and say, hey, my company needs this so we can have consistency across all of our brands, all of our different portals, what have you. You can 
take that knowledge and just say, all right, well, let's let's export these out as web components, you know, stencil, lit, some other uh, abstraction, and then be able to still use your knowledge from like tachyons, but just export these things out as standalone. Like instead of having class card, class, you know, all these classes everywhere, it's just abstracted out as to prefix card, some kind of way to normalize it and make the people who are implementing the UI or like the site or the product, have them think about that. Remove like one layer of thinking for them. They just know, I need a card. Here's the card. Here's the card header. Here's the card body. Uh, And then they can just worry about making sure that that works. Yeah. And some of the other, there are some other use cases people are using Stencil for besides just design systems. If you're building a component library, just like Ionic, or if you're building a set of components that are accessing like a backend service and you want to share those components with people who are using React or Vue or Angular or no framework at all, you can build um, components for those people as well. And one of the examples of this is, um, so we were at Amazon last week talking about Sensel because some of their people are using it. And one of those is an open source project that is AWS Amplify. I don't know if everybody is familiar with that, but they're looking at building, there's an open RFC right now where they're looking at building their components in Stencil so that they can write a single code base and have components that are reusable and available to people who are using any stack that they want, as long as it's on the web. I think that's one of the scenarios that we're hearing more and more of is that, I don't know if everybody read the article about Micro frontends, right? The hotness we've heard on Twitter for the last couple of weeks. Micro frontends are soon to become front endless. <laughs> <laughs> now we can go serverless and front endless. I like it. <laughs> Next is codeless, and then and then I'll go buy a pig farm. <laughs> codeless. There are some companies who are building large scale applications, and teams are taking responsibility over different pieces of the application, right? And they're using like a centralized library to connect things together. But what we're saying is that you can you could possibly build a single component that's responsible for facilitating communication to a backend service and build that component with Stencil and then reuse it in any library that you want. Which is very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those scenarios where it's hard to grasp really the, the use case or why you would use it if you haven't hit that scale yet. When you do strategies like that, doesn't that cause problems because, you know, here you're using a stencil, which is kind of trying to abstract away, I don't know if abstract away the, pr- the framework, but not deal with the frame, right? It's frameworkless, so it can work with any framework, right? But frameworks, and I'll include all the ones that everybody likes to say, it's not a framework, it's a library, but uh, uh, I'll include those ones as well because they have a default set of utilities. So you've got all these utilities that do already these things. So if you're asking a web component to now do some of the similar things, then you're using a different set of tools, potentially duplicating, not just duplicating actual functionality, but duplicating the underlying tools that use that functionality. So now you're now using different tools. For example, if I was using, if you're trying to do this in like one of those uh, micro front-end frameworks, got Angular, got React. Angular has a different HTTP communication library than React has. Now I'm loading up those two. Now with Stencil, do I pick one of the two or do I actually end up potentially either loading a third or using something built in that might then mean that I'm not using some utilities that are already built out in my enterprise to handle all these standard things like our communication, HTTP errors, and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So this is one of the issues that people have with micro frontends, right? Is that you're building an application that loads up like three libraries. And the problem you worry about is you're not reusing the code. So libraries themselves are impacting your time to interact, right? You're, you're having problems because the amount of JS you're downloading. This is something the that, problem all along is we weren't loading enough JS. <laughs> We're complaining about a meg. Maybe if we get to like 50 megs, it's like circular, right? And it, the curve comes back down. So if you're loading all of Stencil, you're loading four kilobytes. The amount of impact that you receive from this is actually quite low because of the amount of things the browser actually provides to you by default. I would say that, yeah, it's possible you're going to be reusing fetch right within your component, but that's something a browser has already made available to you, so you don't necessarily need an entire framework for that. Now, don't get me wrong, I like frameworks. I think they have their use case, but for building a reusable component that you want to use in multiple different websites, 
it may not be the right use case. Right. And I think that like kind of comes down to the argument of frameworks versus components. It's like where does where does that line hit? And you know, we just focus on the component layer. You don't have to worry about figuring out how does everyone bring in like their own HTTP library or do they just use fetch or do they bring in all these five other popular Redux implementations? I don't worry about that. What we need is a uh, server-side compiler that will compile all of my React, Angular, Vue, and serverless, we'll throw Svelte in there, to one common language and, you know, pull out, abstract away all of the different uh, HTTP libraries they're all using, all the utilities into one common grand one. That's what we need. We already have that. It's called the DOM. (laughs) (laughs) It's called the web platform. It's called the web. You ever heard of it? (laughs) Ever heard of this thing called the browser? You should check into it. <laughs> it'll be framework okay. framework assembly, so it'll be FASM. I'm totally not out of line by saying this, that nobody cares about the DOM. Everybody cares about their framework that they've chosen. That is I the, care about the DOM. My framework is four lines long. No, AJ, six lines long. AJ, you're off in the woods eating locusts and honey and crying... In the wilderness, all the rest of us are back in Jerusalem. Not crying, crying not repentance, crying <laughs> for change, for a return to what's good. Not all of us, Joe. <laughs> you, AJ, AJ and Chris are off in the woods. Once you learn how to do var, dollar sign, equals, function, open, close, with selector in there, bracket, and then, here's the kicker, return, document.body, query, selector, open, selector, close, Semicolon, that's important. Close bracket. Boom. That's the new jQuery right there. I was going to say, you just built jQuery. AJ, I don't think we understate the importance of the semicolon either. I'm really yeah. glad you brought that up. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I um, I switched to Prettier. Sorry, I'm going to tangent for a second. Oh, I, geez, switched, I set them off. Oh, I switched gosh. to using Prettier. I'm sorry, guys. Which is great, except that it doesn't support comma first and it screws me up so bad to not have the visual alignment. Wait, 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 wait. I remember comma first. You're a comma first guy? <laughs> I was going to say, so it does things correctly? You can never make a mistake if you do comma first. Well, you can, but you have Challenge to accepted. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's okay he thought Chris wrong. was his ally on this show. The two guys, the two guys in the wilderness are now arguing. <laughs> no, well, anyway, I gave it up Don't for prettier. Don't stack the wood this way. Stack the wood that way, dang it. I, I gave it up for prettier. Point oh, point two. He's, it, you're cooking your locusts wrong. That's what they're arguing over. <laughs> this is not organic fennel. Yeah. <laughs> Drizzle the honey on. You don't dab it on. Look, AJ, you had a nice story, but where is where are my React hooks in that story? They're they're not in there, and I I can't live without them. You know, here's the thing. I don't I don't have the answer for you on that. I guess th- this is the problem that I I see. So pre-optimization is the root of all evil, and I, I think 99% of people are going to fail at everything that they do. And so you might as well fail fast and stay small and work on what's important. And uh, I, I, just, I just would rather spend my time learning the DOM and failing at that than spend all my time learning frameworks and then having to go debug the frameworks and PR the frameworks. It's like, eh, if I just did it in the DOM, my code's only 10 lines long. And it's fine. This is AJ's TED Talk, by the way. You're going to fail at 99% of what you <laughs> Thanks for coming out. (laughs) It's funny. It's true, though. How about we rephrase it and say, like, (laughs) life circumstances will could cause you. Ninety nine percent of your experiences will be learning experiences. (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) Mike and Josh, how do people find stencil and maybe? a walkthrough that can get them to the point where they're benefiting from some of these ideas. You can go to stenciljs.com and there's quite a few uh, pieces of documentation in there and you can actually write npm init stencil, I believe. Is that right, Mike? npm init stencil and it'll create a starter project for you. Nice. And if people want to follow what you guys are working on online, where do they go? Yeah, you can follow me on all the social media as J Toms One, J Thomas One without an A. And uh, I'm basically M Hardington, first initial, last name, everywhere on the internet. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. 
Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. All right, well, let's do some picks. Joe, you have some picks for us? Oh, I totally, totally got some picks. Since we're talking about uh, not bloating our download side, I want to talk about how to bloat your download side. Size. <laughs> uh, there's a really awesome library to handle one of the yet many deficiencies that exist in the web platform, in this case, date times. And that's Moment.js. If you haven't looked at Moment.js, you to- should totally look at Moment.js. It's awesome. And I highly recommend you learn it, even, even if there are times when you shouldn't use it, you should still definitely learn it because, man, it really does make some operations that are very nice possible. As an alternative to that, I'm sure Chris has probably sent out some emails saying, you don't need Moment.js. Let me show you how to do that in Vanilla.js so you could also check out those as well. Let, We're let going to co-author that. I Is actually that really like Day.js. I don't know if you've checked that out, Joe, but it's like the same, same API, slightly uh-huh. smaller footprint. So it might be worth uh-huh. a look. Because I agree. What, what framework with, is that out of? <laughs> All, yeah. Uh, <laughs> backbone. It's part, it was part built. It was part yeah, there backbone. we go. Yeah. Part of MooTools. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, again, speaking about bloating your page size, there's this amazingly fantastic article by Burke Holland, who's on the, is a DevRel over at Azure, I believe. He has this fantastic blog post called How to Increase Your Page Size by 1500% with Webpack and View. And it's one of those ironic, I was doing this thing and I actually totally did it wrong because I didn't understand this stuff and caused this major <laughs> problem. And this is like this, and there's both like tactical and strategic lessons to be learned. Fantastic blog post. You can Google that though, or there'll be links in the show notes. So I highly recommend that read as well. Nice. All right, let's see if we can get Amy on. Yeah, connection sucks, so I'm sorry. I'm going to go with a blog post from Julia Evans that's new. Um, What does debugging a program look like? Just because I've been helping a lot of people do this recently, and I feel like there's some super good advice in here. I know like one thing I see a lot of people do is they like stare at code for hours and hours and hours debugging something, especially if it's kind of more like an issue across that spans multiple repositories or potentially like an infrastructure issue or architectural issue. Like sometimes you need to step away from the code and just kind of think through some of the scenarios that could be causing something to happen. Maybe it's like happens in fraud or something like that. Like sometimes staring at the code is not necessarily uh, the best way to go about debugging things. So just like step back and think through different scenarios. So that's going to be my pick. Nice. And if you want to hear more from Julia, we had her on Ruby Rogues to talk about SpyRB. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Chris, what are your picks? So the other day I was building my own circuit board for my computer and I was looking for the perfect solder to import from Japan. And, oh no, sorry, I'm not AJ. Um, So I have two. The first for me is um, I used to binge watch TV at night before bed and I would spend hours just kind of like watching TV, stay up way too late. So I decided I wanted to start um, reading again and I didn't want the distraction of like the glowing iPad where I have easy access to my email and Twitter and all that stuff. So I started reading with like a super old school backlit. I think it was like the first generation of um, paper white Kindle. And it is just a really, really nice experience. So it's kind of a weird thing, but I, I want to shout out the like actual physical Kindle because um, reading on e-ink is really, really nice and kind of distraction free. Along those same lines, if you're looking for something to read, um, I just started reading Company of One by Paul Jarvis. If you run your own business, run your own freelancing kind of thing, 
or even if you work inside a company and you just kind of want to figure out how to either stand out more or make your work life less stressful, I highly recommend it. Um, I'm a big fan of Paul's stuff, but this is probably one of the best things I think he's ever written. And uh, it periodically shows up on sale um, on Amazon and other places. I actually think I scored my copy for like three bucks, which is way, way less than this book is worth. So go check that out. That's it for me this week. All right. Uh, solder imports from Japan. I, I can't top that. I've got a couple of picks. Uh, one pick is ladders with feet. So I was working on my father-in-law's roof. I went to get down so I could go use the bathroom. And it turned out that the ladder we were using leaned up against the, the house was the extension off of an extension ladder. It wasn't the actual ladder. So it didn't have any feet on it, the rubber feet that make it not slide on the ground. Mm-hmm. And if you can guess where that's going, or if you could see my video where I'm wearing a sling on my arm, yeah, the ladder slipped out from under me and I fell about 10 feet. And uh, luckily, there were all these nice knobby hard branches to break my fall. Otherwise, it would hit the cement. But yeah, so yeah, maybe some safety equipment. Maybe I'll pick that as well. Anyway, it's just kind of a fun story or a funny story that I, anyway, I'm fine. But yeah, I'm, I'm recovering. So yeah. I didn't even notice your sling. It blends in so seamlessly with your hoodie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got a sweatshirt on because uh, my wife likes the the house set to sub-zero temperatures. And so I wear long sleeve shirts to bed. And I haven't changed my clothes. So there you go. I'm also going to shout out a few picks. So this is the first episode that we've recorded of JavaScript Jabber since I've updated devchat.tv. So if you go over to devchat.tv, it's all hosted on Netlify. It's runoff of 11DJS. You know, a lot of this was inspired by the episode we did with Phil and Divya. And I've gotten a lot of help from them and from Chris Ferdinandi. So I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I think it looks really good. A lot of stuff is easier to find. I definitely have some things I want to add to it. So yeah, we're we're looking to a lot of that stuff. Anyway, I'm I'm super happy with it. And so one of the picks that I have now, I, I got it up and I had a few people complain about the performance of the site. And it turned out that it was using some full-sized images like the full-size images you give to iTunes because they want it 3,000 by 3,000 pixels. And so 3 meg images are not people's ideal download sizes. And so um, I used Lighthouse on Chrome. Uh, You just open up the dev tools and run an audit on your page. And it told me where the problems were. And so then I used Acorn, which is another pick. It's cheaper than Photoshop and it has a lot of the features that I use, but not everything that Photoshop has to re-export and compress the files. And so, yeah. It loads quite a bit faster now, and I'm pretty happy with that. So, so I'm, I'm just going to shout out about all that stuff. Mike, do you have some picks for us? I do. What I mentioned during the podcast was building design systems. If you are interested in that subject, I would highly suggest taking a look at the book uh, and buying it. The authors are people who actually do this stuff for a living and are literal experts in the subject. So definitely check it out. And another one, you might not need.com slash moment.js. For all the reasons why you might need moment.js, here's a couple of reasons why you probably don't need moment.js. And there's other subcategories like you might not need Lodash. Oh, you mean that thing that's an ECMAScript standard like since ES 5.1? Some of it is, but yeah. Josh, what are your picks? So I've got one pick and my pick is Toy Story 4. So I went this yes. weekend, watched it with the fam, and it was as good as I expected. We all thoroughly enjoyed it. Were, were there tears to be had? Not during the movie, but there was like a preview about a dog. And if there's any dog previews, like I'm going to cry. That's just you're, how it is. You're tougher than me then, Josh. I cried at the end of Toy Story 4. That got um, me right in the feels, man. Oof. <laughs> the last movie that I cried at was at the end of Avengers in, uh, Endgame. And now I'm just like, all right, I've cried at a movie. I need to find another movie to cry at. So I might go see Toy Story 4. So do yourself a favor. Another pick, I guess I'll add, is Hachi. If anyone has ever seen that movie, it's, it's called Hachi. It's a story about a dog from Japan. Uh, Richard Greer is in the movie as well. But went through an entire box of Kleenexes watching that. So... Yeah, Avengers Endgame, I cried at the end of it because they said that a certain thing couldn't happen and then they made it happen for the climax. So anyway, I'm not going to spoil it for people, but yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was pretty disappointed. All right, well, we'll let, let's go ahead and wrap this up. I didn't go. I didn't go. go. I didn't go. Uh, <laughs> I imported solder. No, that was imported me. solder. 
No, that was Chris. Chris was, was <laughs> me, me pretending to be AJ. I know. I uh, know. I I can't believe I missed you. Go ahead, AJ. What are your picks? Gosh, I'm <laughs> crying. I'm crying. Um, okay, so I got three things. First one, of course, is Link's Awakening for the Nintendo Switch. You know, nobody's played it yet, so we have no idea whether it's good or not. But it looks like a faithful reproduction to the original. And I think that Link's Awakening is in the top five best games ever made in terms of story, gameplay, puzzle solving, etc. It's just an amazing game. So don't use my Amazon link. Go to GameStop instead and get uh, hooked up there because... When you buy from Amazon, you miss out on like any of the special edition stuff that would normally get included. And when you get it from GameStop, you'll get like the special edition stuff and they sell out less quickly. So then I'm going to pick. So there's this, it was like back in the 90s when I was like in middle school or something, I had this friend that was into this thing called Nerve Eva, which I don't know why it's called Nerve Eva because it's actually called Neon Genesis Evangelion. And it's a weird anime that I don't really. Like, sometimes anime is weird because Japanese culture is just different. Like, the way that they view spirituality, their concept of, like, God and angels and demons is just, like, way off from, from like, our Western perspective. And so I, I'm not into it enough to, to like, um, to really say whether or not I, I like the show. But my friend back in middle school had given me this burn CD that's the soundtrack for the show. And it turns out I lost it. But it's available on Amazon. And I love the soundtrack. It's got mixed, um, it's mixed with kind of American style music and Japanese style music. So it has um, these weird J-pop renditions of Fly Me to the Moon. And I just, I just love the soundtrack. So I'm picking the soundtrack. And then, um, you know, with reservation, I'm going to pick Prettier. And uh, I, just, I just wish they supported Kama first. And the reason for that is the same, the same argument that most people have for semicolons is the reason that I have for Kama first is you just have to worry about it less. You know, like you, when the semicolon's there, you don't have to learn the nine easy rules that you only have to follow when there's a problem. You just learn the one rule, end it with a semicolon. Same thing with comma first. You don't have to like visually parse and be like, okay, when I copy and paste a line, which lines do I need to go edit the end of? Because when it's at the front, it's all just super pretty and you can tell if a comma's missing because the thing will be out of alignment. It'll be really ugly. So... I guess I'm actually picking comma first, but I said I was picking prettier, and that's it. Nice. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up, folks, and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.